There are realities that the scripture teach us, teaches us that every single person in this world must come to terms with. There are great and awesome realities, and God has made it plain what these are in his word. One of those realities is the fact that all of God's people who are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ will suffer. This has always been the case since sin has entered into the world and the first family experienced the murder of one of their children. Abel was killed by his own brother Cain. And so it's been throughout all of history, the history of God's people, there has been this irreconcilable war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The 16th century, the time of the Reformation, was no stranger to some of these sorrows and these joys. In 1555, for instance, 300 believers were put to death by the Queen of England, Bloody Mary. Not all of these were pastors. In fact, a lot of these were children and husbands and wives and people who were just working class people. And it was during this time that a man wrote a book entitled The Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days. This is called John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Mm -hmm. And while he was writing it, he had to flee England because Bloody Mary did not want him writing this. This was a chronicling, an account, a history of all of God's people who have undergone serious persecution. And why would John Fox write something like this? Because he wanted the believers to be encouraged that God was at work in the life of his church. God's people will always undergo persecution. And as one person stated, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's interesting that Queen Elizabeth, Mary's successor, actually ordered that a copy of John Fox's Book of Martyrs be placed in every pulpit in England. And this was so that believers would be encouraged. Why is, or what is the reason behind persecution? Well, it's because of sin and the open hostility of the devil, the enemy of God and his people, and his hostility against God and the people of God. He hates the Lord and all who are associated with him. And so the goal of persecution is to destroy God and his people. John Owen, again, a a, a Puritan writer, states that the goal of persecution when the devil bears his teeth as the dragon is to rip the church away from its firm foundation. And he says that in the beginning chapters on the glories of Christ. And so while while hearing this has the potential to kind of instill some sort of uh, nervousness or sense of naughtiness in your stomachs and butterflies. The reality is that we have come to a Savior who has, according to Hebrews, an indestructible life, who can call into things, things that are not, and he can raise the dead from the grave. This is the Savior that we have come to know And it is in him that we place all of our faith and all of our confidence so that when these times do come, and they will, they will. When these times do come, 
we can say with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. This morning, I want you to take, I want to take you through three stops along the corridor of the Christian life of persecution. Three stops we'll be making today. If this was a subway, we just, Elise and I just went to New York on, on Friday. We rode the subway together. But if this were a subway line called the Christian life, I want to take you along three stops. The first is the principle of persecution. That's in verse 10. This is where the Lord deals generally with persecution. The second stop will be personal persecution. And the third stop will be the praise of reward in persecution. So let's look at verse 10 together. As we're coming to the close of the being attitudes, the Sermon on the Mount continues, but the Beatitudes comes to a close here in verses 10 through 12. As we come to the close of the being attitudes, what we find is something similar to verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we heard that before in verse 3, when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in verse 10, the Lord does something different that he he hasn't done in the previous verses. He shifts the language to something that is being done to those who are blessed. Those who find favor under the gaze of the Lord, before the face of God. Those who are living in the light of the glory of His grace now are being attacked or they are experiencing something outside of themselves that's coming directly at them. And this is persecution. These are the ones who are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does that righteousness look like? It doesn't necessarily mean that we are made righteous in Christ, although it involves that. But this is the outflow of having been made righteous before God by faith. Now the outflow of all that we do so that whether we think or act or sit and drink or whatever it is that we do, all of our life is coming out of the fruit of righteousness. And so everything that we desire in thought, word, and in deed falls under the category of pleasing God. And this is a life of righteousness. This is what you desire. This is exactly what we read in Psalm 27. One thing have I desired, that I would seek the Lord and inquire in His temple, that I would be in His house all the days of my life. This is a life of righteousness. Righteousness doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that you see the world through the lens of God Himself, and his word. Everyone sees the word and the world and interprets the world in a specific way. There is a grid that we all filter this world through. And if you are not a believer, you are filtering the world through the lens of this world. In other words, your eyes cannot rise higher than the horizon line of this world. So all of your music, all of your television shows, all of the things that you put your hands to will all rest on the horizon line of this world and that's it. But for the believer, now there is something else that you see that goes beyond the horizon line and you lift your eyes past the creation to the creator. 
and you give him praise and you interpret the entirety of this world and all of your life through the lens of pleasing him. This is righteousness. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, he's not an idealist preacher who just wants to preach positive vibes only. He's not just speaking into the air all of the things that you read in cards for Christmas. Jesus is being absolutely real with the people who are choosing to follow the Lord. There are many spiritual people today who will tell you that they only want positive vibes, only positive talk. Yeah. And they'll tell you, we don't want to invite any negativity into our lives. And you can meet those people on the street or on the highway. But this is not the kind of teacher that Jesus is. This is not the kind of people who know the Lord. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy. The persecution that Jesus speaks of in this verse rests solely on one thing. Righteousness. Righteousness not as defined by the judge down the street, not as defined by this world, but righteousness is defined by God, whose very throne is truth and righteousness. In other words, all of your life is based upon what God has revealed about himself. Every single part of your life, so that you're taking the tent pegs of the knowledge of God's character, and with the hammer of faith, you're nailing every single part of your life down with God's word and what he has revealed about himself. So every single aspect of your life now comes into conformity with Christ. And that means whether you wash dishes, you wash it to the glory of God. Whether you change a baby's diaper, you do it to the glory of God. If you are asked to do something that you don't want to do, the scripture tells us do not complain. Christ could have complained about coming to save you, but he didn't. And so all of our lives are falling into conformity with the righteousness of Christ. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now this principle of persecution in action is highlighted for us in Matthew's gospel. It's no coincidence that Matthew actually records the first man and the first family that is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. We find that. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph. Joseph, who is obedient to the Lord, who wants to follow the Lord, who wants to do what's right, suddenly hears that Mary, who who he's betrothed to, is with child. And Matthew chapter 1, in our Bibles, tells us that her husband Joseph, in chapter 1, verse 19, being a just Man, that word is the same word as righteous. Being a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, let's just say that it was true. There's a scandal. In Joseph's mind, he doesn't know what the angel is about to tell him. Take her to be your wife. This woman has Christ in her womb. He doesn't know that part yet. All he knows is that she's pregnant and there's a scandal. And he doesn't want to do the wrong thing by putting her to a public shame. So he does the right thing before the eyes of the Lord. This is called integrity. This is called a demonstration of righteousness. Even when Joseph is wronged, he does the right thing before the Lord. And there's a lesson for us in that too. 
when someone wrongs us, we don't retaliate with unrighteousness, but we go before the Lord and we do the right thing before the Lord because this is the way of righteousness. And so it's no coincidence that Matthew puts this in his gospel. And then next thing you know, you see the persecution of the first family now being hunted by the troubled king of Israel, Herod. And so they flee. They flee in righteousness. They flee. That doesn't mean just because you are pursuing righteousness, you stay where you're at. You flee when there's danger. You use wisdom. And so... When the aim of your life is a resolution to be single-mindedly focused on doing what's right and honorable before the Lord, even when no one is looking, this is righteousness and this is what counts. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All of God's people have gone through persecution and will go through persecution. But then the Lord begins to change the language a little bit. And every single, if you look at every single commentary on this, everyone picks up on this. It's like everyone is standing and watching Jesus as he's speaking now and they're listening to him and they're now wondering, how come the language just changed? Because he's not saying, blessed are those, like he's speaking out into the air, these platitudes for everyone to delight in. No, he takes the camera And he points it directly at you. And then he says in verse 10 or verse 11, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. So at first, in verse 10, it was on the account of righteousness. But now it's on Jesus' account. And so we go from this principle, stop number one, of persecution to now personal persecution, where it now gets personal. Blessed are you when they revile you, and so on. In verse 11, we have Jesus' last bestowal of blessedness, and this lands on those who are being reviled, hunted down with persecution the way Herod furiously hunted down the family of Jesus and Jesus himself, and slandered with all kinds of evil, false things being spoken. You are sitting there in front of Jesus on this mountain, listening to him saying these things, and he calls you blessed. But wait a minute, Jesus. You're telling me that I'm going to be persecuted, that I'm going to be hunted down, that I'm going to be spoken evil against. And who is this? What's the reason for this? Oh, he says it's on my account. So now we go from righteousness generally to the embodiment of righteousness himself. The reason that there is an intentional reviling against Jesus' disciples is because of Jesus himself. The reason why someone's after you to hunt you down, to persecute you, is because of Jesus himself. The reason why there is a malicious and grand smear campaign against you and everything you are is because of Jesus himself. You are guilty by association. And so the principal object of hatred is animosity, 
intentional hurt is none other than Jesus. And if you can't get to if they can't get to Jesus, they're gonna come for you. And this is why we have in Acts chapter 9 with, we read in, in Psalm 27 that the evildoers breathe out violence. And what was Paul doing? He was breathing out violence against the church. This is why Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes the persecutions of his people personally. Now, I don't want you guys, I know we pray for the persecuted church. I know we, we think about places like Nigeria. We think about places like uh, uh, Sudan and all of these places where they hunt down Christians. But persecution doesn't just have to mean that people are coming to your homes, throwing bricks at your windows and trying to rob you and burn your house down. But it could be a snicker at the office yeah. mm-hmm. when you say that you hold to what the Bible says. It could be the... Lack of a telephone call or a text message when family things come together and you are the odd person out. How come no one called me? Did you guys forget about me? No, it's because we just don't want to have you in our thinking, just like we don't want God in our thinking. Even though you're family, you don't fit in with how we do things. And so there you have a passive persecution. The persecution becomes personal because all persecution is aimed at Christ. And Christ takes his persecutions personally. Mm. And so the personal attack on those who have chosen to align themselves with Christ is guaranteed. Mm. It is guaranteed. If you don't want any part of this, you can say, you know what? I'm folding up my clothes. I'm getting out of here just like Demas Forsake, forsook Paul for the world and left to Thessalonica. I'm out of here. I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to deal with this. I can just be loving towards people. And you know what's interesting about this? I was actually just reading a, 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 a portion of Bonhoeffer's biography by Eric Metaxas. And when the Germans got their butts kicked in World War I, there was this campaign to kind of restore this nationalism and so this pride in in Germany. And what the one thing that they went after with every pastor was please don't preach on sin and persecution. We've had enough of that. We want to build the self-esteem of people up. So let's talk about the good things. Let's talk about the things that are going to make for, oh, let's quote 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, edification. Let's talk about edification, because if you talk about persecution, if you talk about a smear campaign against Christians, everyone's going to be depressed. So we don't want people walking out of these pews depressed. Mm. So let's leave it off. And what happened? Sin did not get tackled by the physicians in the church and the diseases and the outworkings of sin ran wild. And this is still happening today. And so when you realize that personal persecution rises to the level of things even like politics, you'll realize that all of the world, Psalm 2, conspires against the Lord. Mm. Why do you have to make it always about the Lord? Because this is all about Christ. This is all about, this is the goal of all creation is the glory of Christ. The exaltation of our God and Savior, the one who gave himself for us, willingly, lovingly, laying his life down. And for us to reject that is to reject the only source of life that we have. 
But Jesus doesn't stop here. If we were to stop here, we would certainly do well to think deeply about how important this is. It would be good for us to be sobered up from the fluffy nature of this world. Yeah. It would, it would do well for us, but Jesus doesn't stop here, so I'm not going to stop here. Jesus is not calling for his disciples to undergo personal difficulty because that's the thing to do. It's not the manly thing to do. Jesus is calling for his disciples to undergo difficulty in life because this is inevitable. In other words, there will be no peace between you and this world until Christ comes where he makes all things new. That doesn't mean that we instigate persecution. There are people in this world who do instigate persecution. That doesn't mean that we become boneheads because Christ said, well, I'm going to suffer, so I may as well just kick it into high gear and just be a knucklehead. No. No. That means that all of our life is lived under the pursuit of Christ himself. So we go from stop number one, the general, which is the principle of persecution. We make our way to the personal persecution. And then the promise in persecution is in verse 12. He actually gives you a command. He doesn't give you a suggestion, but he gives you a command. He says, rejoice. Well, this comes as a shock of cold water being put on your face after you're listening that you're going to get persecuted. Rejoice and be glad is what he says. You rejoice. You be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the New King James, we actually have you be exceedingly glad. So this is not just a, okay, I'm just going to be nice and happy that I'm going to get persecuted, going to the office tomorrow, hoping that someone will persecute me. No, this is a joy and a gladness that comes from being identified with Christ. This is exactly what Peter and John went through in Acts chapter 5, where they were flogged, they were beaten because they were told not to speak in Christ's name. And guess what? They walked out Praising the Lord because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now, we pause there because we say, well, I see the promise and I see the rejoicing and I see the be glad and I see the exceedingly be glad in, my, in, in, in the New King James. I get it, but I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. And many of us are not. It's a strange thing. I'm quoting now a, a pastor. I didn't make this up and I don't make a lot of things up, so that's good. But... <laughs> It's a strange thing that we as believers have not undergone persecution in this country. In the way that one of my seminary classmates has undergone persecution, where people go from city to city and town to town looking for Christians and knocking on their door and saying, do you confess Christ? Oh yeah, who are you? Boom, you're dead. And sadly, one of our seminary students had family members who have undergone that. Today, this is not 2,000 years ago. This is today. It's a strange thing that here in America we are not undergoing some of the similar things. But it will come. And it is coming. And in subtle ways, the way John the Apostle says that the spirit of Antichrist is coming and is already here, so we have that happening 
here. The more we follow along the Lord, wherever the Lamb goes, wherever the Lamb of God leads us, the more we will find that we are diametrically opposed to the things of this world. But the promise in persecution is given to us between verses 3 and even verse 12. So let's add some of these rewards up. First reward, verse 3, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, you will be comforted by the God of all comfort, not by a Hallmark card. You will inherit the earth, not just some portion in Comac or in Kings Park or somewhere else. You will inherit the earth. You will be, in verse 6, eternally satisfied and filled to the max with righteousness. The things that break your heart. When you see murder, uh, babies being murdered by places like Planned Parenthood, and you long for justice to, to happen, and you long for God to take vengeance on his enemies, and you long for things to be made right, this will happen. You will be satisfied to the max with the justice and the righteousness of God. You will obtain mercy because that's who God has revealed himself to be. The God who is gracious and compassionate, full of mercy. You will always be called a son of God. And this doesn't mean that you, everyone is now being changed in their genders. This means, like Pastor said last week, you are now being identified with God himself. And that is what you will be forever, both now and forever. And verse 10, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward. Our reward is great. It's great. It's not a 401k. It's not a Roth IRA. It's not a thousand trips to the Riviera. These are your rewards. Things that no one can take away from you. And these things cannot compare to a lifetime of money or stuff that this world can offer. It's interesting that when Steve Jobs died, he said, all of the things that I've accumulated mean nothing to me now. Wow. Nothing. Because you can't pack all of the things that you've done with your hands into the life to come. Mm-hmm. So let's ask a final question before we start drawing these things down into our hearts and we reach the station. Who's the they in verse 12? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (laughs) Who are you talking about? And I think that the clue that Matthew gives to us is in chapter 23, verse 37, where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, The Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. And he begins to say, how often I would have loved to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Is this Matthew's version of Mm anti-Semitism? No, because Matthew's a Jew. And Matthew is longing for his brothers and his sisters, his countrymen, to come and see the Messiah who's laying his life down for them. And so he intentionally, by the Spirit, records 
Jesus as saying this. These are the ones whom God has sent, these prophets, all of God's people who have come to say the things of the Lord, the righteous things of the Lord, and now Jerusalem, God's own people, have turned on them. In Amos chapter 7, on the left side of the Bible, one of the prophets comes to Amos and says, get out of here. I don't want any of your prophecies. And he reports him to the king for treason and sedition. And he says, this man, Amos, is preaching against you. Go to another city. Leave. We don't want your kind here. And Amos says, I'm not the son of a prophet. I was just taken from the sheepfolds and God called me to proclaim his word. And the reason why I say that is because it's Matthew's own countrymen that are turning against Christ. And some of you will face that if you haven't already, in your own families, in your own friends, even from other believers. And this is why we have to pray. This is the importance of taking advantage of the means of grace to pray for one another, to be in communion with one another, to strengthen one another. If you choose to abandon the means of grace that God has given to you, the gifts that God has given to you are being withheld from the edification of this church. And so, we have to strengthen one another and realize that the persecution doesn't just come from without, but also from within. There are 24 instances in the book of Matthew where Jesus faces every single one of the things he says here. So, the general doesn't go into the war without having first faced these things himself. This is true of Alexander the Great, who was always first in the battle. In fact, his beautiful horse, Bucephalus, the white shining horse that he rode on, was killed in battle because Alexander wanted to be first. And so he goes up the mountain with his horse, and all of these, this black cloud of arrows are flying down on Alexander and his horse. Alexander won the battle at the cost of his horse. But we have someone who's greater than Alexander here. Amen. We have the Lord who goes into the battle before us, showcasing all of these beatitudes for us, so that, like Peter says, we have someone to look to, an example, mm-hmm. Christ himself. How are you going to tell me to be glad when my own kids won't talk to me? How are you going to tell me to be glad and rejoice when... Someone forgets to text me or call me to invite me to family meals. How are you going to tell me to rejoice and be glad when someone from the HR department calls me about diversity, equity, and inclusion and says, you have an unconscious bias, you believe the Bible, and this is offensive to some people? How are you going to tell me to rejoice and be glad? Well, what would Matthew tell you? Matthew will tell you that the Lord underwent all of these things for the joy that was set before him. And so the Pharisees plot to destroy Jesus. Jesus explicitly states that this is their intention. This is premeditated murder. The lawyers get involved and try to entrap Jesus. The political party, the Sadducees, aim to do the same thing. The Pharisees try to do the same thing. Everyone's out to get Jesus so that he's going from city to city, town to town. You think he's telling you to do something that he himself hasn't experienced? No. And so he says, your reward is great. What is that reward? 
to be in the presence of the Lord forever. When you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus rises from the dead, do you know what the first word that Jesus is recorded as saying by Matthew? This doesn't mean that this is the first word that Jesus actually said after he rose up from the dead. But Matthew intentionally does something. Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. Jesus has just been raised. And behold, it doesn't say it in the ESV, so I'm going to take off a point for the ESV. Not that I'm a scholar. But the word is, and behold, Jesus met his disciples and said, I'll say it in Greek and then I'll say it in English. Kai re te. Rejoice. It's not greetings. It's rejoice. Rejoice. What did he say in chapter 5, verse 12? Rejoice. Rejoice. There is a reason to rejoice because Christ has been raised from the grave. There is no death anymore. There is no reason to be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing. What are you going to do to us? Be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And this is why he says, Be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. I'm sending you out into the midst of wolves. Mm. And he says, Don't be afraid. There are times in this country and all over the world where things will get grim and things will grow darker, but the reward that we have is a risen Savior who literally lives right now. Amen. And this is the only reason that we can rejoice. Mm -hmm. This is the only reason that we can say, I will walk in the ways of the Lord. And we will train our children and do our best to plead with our children to walk in the ways of the Lord. Come what may. William Tyndale is responsible for your translations in English. But he was the most hunted man in England and all of Europe by a man who was ruthless and skilled at his job named Thomas More. And Thomas More got upset one day and he said, this man is nowhere. I can't find him and he's everywhere. (laughs) I can't find him. And William Tyndale, who is translating the Hebrew, the Latin, the Greek, all into English so that the average person like you and me Mm. can read our Bibles in English, had a friend who turned on him, just like Jesus, a Judas who tricked him, and then William Tyndale Tyndale was arrested. And I'm sure that William Tyndale would have said, I would do this a thousand times for the sake of my brothers because of Christ. Will you say the same thing? The time to decide when you are going to serve the Lord is not when the fires get turned up. When the people come knocking and saying, are you raising your children in the ways of the Lord according to the scripture? We need to take them away from you. When the time comes, when the government and all these other institutions say, you are a traitor to your country because you follow the Lord. The time is not to decide at that point that you are going to follow the Lord. That had to be done before in the calm of the common grace and the restraining grace of the Lord Mm. right now. Amen. And this is why we push you and we urge you and we tell you and we plead with you. Dig your souls deep into God's word. Yes. 
what will sustain you individually and as a congregation during persecution. The powerful, invincible work of the Father who maintained all of his people throughout history by his Spirit, raising our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead so that not even Herod and all of his secret agents could get to him. And so we entrust ourselves and our souls to a faithful God and Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.